0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program and welcome to a conversation this week about a bunch of things, really. But at the root of the discussion is the question of how philosophy and pop culture relate to each other. If you're interested in feminism and cinema, then you probably know about The Bechdel Test. It's named after the American cartoonist Alison Bechdel, who in 1985 wrote a comic strip where you have two friends talking about going to see a movie, and one friend says to the other that she will only go to see a movie if it has at least two women in it, if the women talk to each other, and if their conversation is about something other than a man. Those three rules have come to be known as the Bechdel test. And nearly 40 years later, that test is still a pretty good yardstick by which to measure the representation of women in film and other fiction. Well, my guest this week has been researching the representation of women in video games, particularly the question of how often and how much female characters get to speak in video games, how much dialogue they have. And after looking at more than 13,000 video game characters, she and her co-researcher have found that men in these games speak roughly twice as much as women. And when you start to ask why this is an important finding rather than just an interesting one, you get into some quite fascinating analysis of the ways in which we create meaning through popular culture. Stephanie Rennick is a research associate in philosophy at the University of Glasgow, and she joins me now. Steph, welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by talking about how gender is represented or enacted in the world of video games. Given that the world of the video game is a world in which theoretically anything can happen, are there plenty of games where we would encounter genderqueer characters, non-binary characters? Are there games that are consciously structured in such a way as to challenge traditional gender norms? Or, or, Or does the world of video games reflect a very straight binary sort of world?
0: Uh, Yes to both, which is kind of sounds like it should be confusing. So increasingly, video games are representing gender in more diverse ways. So we see in even in some mainstream games, um, like the recent Forza game, for example, uh, being able to choose your character creation, being able to choose body types or certain features or certain pronouns rather than picking a particular gender and having a whole bunch of stuff just automatically come along with that and we see increasingly more non-binary characters, more trans characters, but still far fewer of them than we would expect to see if games were reflecting reality.
1: It's interesting. I I wonder if it reflects in some ways the world of video game developers. Is that a very gender fluid world?
0: Again, I think that's changing as more and more people get the tools to be able to develop video games uh, much like the rise of fan fiction in the early days of the internet which are now obviously as this full burgeoning industry the tools to make games are becoming more and more open access and more and more widely available however i suspect and I think some of the older studies bear out that the demographics in some of the main publishing houses aren't as diverse as you know the rest of the world is, for example. Uh, so some of that seems to be about the reflection of developers, but also there are decisions uh, that are made within games, within the game code. There are certain sort of conventions in gaming, like, for example, that guards tend to be male, or enemies that you can cut down if they're humanoid tend to be men rather than women. Um, So, there there are other kind of factors going in, I think, that affect how representation happens in those games.
1: So, you've just released the results of a study of a gender imbalance in video game dialogue. And I want to get into it by asking first, I mean, it it might seem like a sort of self-evident question, but how important is the dialogue in video games?
0: It depends on the game. We chose RPGs where dialogue is a really central, that's role-playing games, where dialogue is a really central mechanic. So dialogue is how you make stuff happen in the game world. Making choices affects how people will interact with you, whether they will assign you quests, whether they will sell things to you. And just like it is in real life, dialogue in games isn't just about exchange of information. It's about how we participate in relationships, how we form and construct those relationships, how we show in-group membership, how we uh, navigate the world. So dialogue increasingly... Big part of video games it has been for a long time, but as we get more and more memory space in games and we can fit more dialogue in, there's a huge amount. Just to give you an example, and um, the Elder Scrolls Obsidian, which is a not particularly new game that was in our corpus, has 700,000 words of dialogue. Several of the games in the corpus have more than half a million words. You compare that to something like the Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring film; it has about 30,000 words. So I mean, there's huge amounts of dialogue. That's one thing. The other thing is dialogue has been seen as important when studying other kinds of media. So when people have been interested in how gender and other features of social life are represented and constructed um, in popular media, often dialogue is the thing they look at. So if you think of things like the Bechdel test or, um, you know, who gets to be the main characters, those kind of tests often use dialogue as a proxy for those measures.
1: Right. So... That being the case then, I mean, your your study has analysed more than 13,000 video game characters and and found that male characters speak twice as much as female characters. But given that the player takes an active role in how things turn out in the narrative of the game, is it possible for the gamer to sort of gamify the gendered aspects of the dialogue, like maybe try to speak with only or mostly female characters? Does does the player have that sort of choice and and does it it matter?
0: It's a really good question. So, two things. One, it is true that many conversations in video games are optional or are conditional behind certain conditional triggers. So it's very difficult to track how much dialogue you would get based on avoiding certain conversations. But what we can do, this is the second thing, is look at within a certain dialogue tree, so that's what a conversation gets called in a video game because it it has a kind of branching structure. If you make a choice that leads to further branches unlocking. Within a given dialogue tree, so I walk up as the player character to a non-player character, an NPC, and say something to them. In that conversation, can I maximize the amount of male dialogue or can I maximize the amount of female dialogue such that across my experience of the game, I end up avoiding these biases towards male dialogue. And to test that, we uh, simulated an omniscient player who could tell what options would lead to what answers. And we found that about one third of the time, if you were trying to maximize female dialogue, you could win. That is, you could hear more than 50% dialogue, uh, female dialogue per tree. About two thirds of the time, however, if you were playing the maximized male game, you would win. And when you play the male game and win, you could win by double the amount of words. So it's much easier to maximize male dialogue and you win by more than if you were playing the female dialogue. And what we found then is that although players can make some kind of movement in terms of these biases, they just can't avoid them altogether.
1: It's interesting, I think, to consider the differences between dialogue in real life and dialogue in video games, where women in real life might speak less than men because of certain gendered expectations or or social pressures that they've internalised. But if women are speaking less than men in video games, it's because, I presume, because they've been deliberately coded or created in such a way as as to make this happen. That seems like a more troubling phenomenon. Is, is, Is that how you see it?
0: It's interesting. So one thing we found which surprised us was that it's not that individually women are speaking less on average than men. We kind of expected it might be. Um, But actually what we found is that generally speaking, it's that there are far fewer women speaking at all. So although there are other... Problematic stereotypes arising in the speech when women do speak. So for example, they uh, apologize more, they swear less, they are more likely to refer to family. There, There are a whole bunch of stereotypes that are creeping into what they do get to say and they get to speak to other women less than we would expect. Everyone speaks to men more than you would expect if it was random. It's not the case that women are, at least it doesn't seem to be the case that women are being actively silenced. What seems to be more happening is that a greater variety of character roles are being assigned to men. And I'm not sure whether that's because uh, writers already have the character roles in mind and then they assume that a male character is the right kind of character or whether they have particular characters in mind who happen to be men and thus they assign them, you know, particular roles that they associate. I, I can't speak to what exactly is going on in those writing decisions, but it does seem to be the case that the number one easiest fix would be just have more women.
1: Yeah. Do we see this kind of negative gendering reflected in the ways that female characters in video games act or behave, or perhaps in the things that happen to them in the game?
0: So one thing we did find, we did specific qualitative studies of what was going on in certain games. So we did these big overarching patterns and then we drilled in and in one game, the dialogue was tagged with the emotions spoken by that non-player character. So a character might deliver a line that's angry or they might be sad. or. And we found that women were more likely to be neutral than men and male characters were more likely to have all of the other emotions than their female counterparts. But also female characters were more likely to exhibit emotion at the uh, default intensity. So it seems like men were being given a bigger range uh, within which they could speak. We also found, uh, we did an analysis of uh, the character Jessie from Final Fantasy VII. And Final Fantasy is interesting because it was remade or the first part of the game was remade recently. So we can do this kind of diachronic comparison. The character Jessie in the first game has about 30 lines of dialogue and uh, she spends about a third of the time introducing the character to the play mechanics of the game, like how to play the game. She spends about half of the time uh, exhibiting her personality, which includes some flirting, but it also includes some you know, talking about herself. And she spends about a third of the time showing her expertise because she's an ammunition expert. In the remake, she's given 10 times as many lines, which sounds like it should be a great thing, right? She gets about 300 lines, except now something like 80% of her dialogue is flirting and showing her personality and very little of it is about her showing off her expertise. So none of these things individually are conclusive, but what they are is indicative of a set of biases kind of creeping in. So I guess what I would say is games have a choice as to whether they want to be realistic or they want to be aspirational or they want to be dystopian, right? The wonderful thing, no, games don't all have to be the same thing, but I hope that this data can be used either to represent the world better if realism is what people are interested in or represent better worlds if they want to be aspirational, which I hope they are.
1: In your research, are the games that you've looked at mostly games created by Western developers? Because I'm wondering if if we might see differences in the way that gender is portrayed and enacted across different cultures, you know, say in in games developed in Asia or the Middle East or somewhere like that.
0: Uh, It's a good question. So we tried to have a balance between uh, what are called Western-style RPGs and Japanese-style RPGs or JRPGs. And we didn't find an obvious difference in terms of these biases. We even looked at different translations of Persona 5 to compare whether something was going on with the English translation that might be kind of putting biases in and that didn't appear to be the case. But it's certainly the case that there is room for people to do more nuanced study of the different regions and I, I would anticipate that there would be some differences in terms of for example, uh, the content of the dialogue or what roles different genders get assigned, for instance. I would uh, yeah, I think there's there's really interesting fruit for research there.
1: You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone on Radio National and the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge, and I'm talking this week with Steph Rennick in the School of Humanities at the University of Glasgow. Jeff, you're a philosopher as well as a video game researcher, and I'm I'm wondering where and how and what kind of philosophy buttons is all of this pushing for you? I mean, obviously, we're we're sort of talking about this in a a sort of a small P philosophical way, looking at some of the ideas and the concepts in play. But as a professional philosopher, um, what's going on here for you?
0: so i like stories (laughs) this is the short version so i i came into philosophy as a time travel philosopher so as a metaphysician as someone who's interested in what was real what was possible what would the world be like if something like time travel were possible and what does thinking about it teach us about other things we take for granted so using time travel as a lens to think about free will or foreknowledge or luck or causation and i realized through speaking to other time travel philosophers who are a lovely bunch. If you've ever got to speak to a philosopher, a time travel philosopher is the one you want to find. Um, There are some great ones in Australia as well. Um, I found that the bits that really interested me were the bits that were capturing the popular imagination. So I wanted to go out and be speaking to people at conventions and things and hear the fabulous questions they had about the time travel fiction that really moved them. Is this possible? Is this scenario possible? Could I go back in time and do X, Y, and Z? Um, What would it be like if there was a time traveler who knew my future? And slowly that made me realize actually that maybe there was something going on with the patterns in that literature that might tell us something that might be useful to think about philosophically. Which led me to think about tropes, which are patterns or conventions in the narrative or mechanics of storytelling. So things like um, you can't change the past for example, might be a a trope that appears in quite a lot of time travel fiction. Confusingly, there's also the trope you can change the past. Um, But damsels in distress are tropes. Um, The idea that free will requires choice can be a trope that comes up in fiction. And I was interested in, firstly, how I could use my philosophical knowledge to help make sense of certain patterns that were going on in fiction and where there might be room to tell new stories that weren't where philosophy had some ideas that weren't yet being explored in fiction and increasingly i realized that that needed to be a bi-directional exchange because fiction also has some brilliant ideas there's possibility space explored in fiction that isn't explored in philosophy and i as i say i'm interested in tropes i'm interested in which ideas get to stick which ideas get repeatedly perpetuated and picked up and changed in different kinds of media and whether there's anything that we as academics, not just philosophers, but academics generally might learn from that, um, which led into the video game stuff because... What I do in my video game work, which is interdisciplinary but does have this strong uh, philosophical bent, is think about how tropes might serve as opportunities to uh, subvert expectations. So where we're used to seeing something handled in a particular way. So, for example, guards as being men or we're used to video game conversation being repetitive in certain ways, whether we can intervene there to help tell new stories.
1: Right. That's really interesting because it, it kind of turns the this, this kind of reflexive understanding of what a trope is that I have uh, on its head rather. Because one thing about tropes is that they often work as a sort of a shorthand, I guess, where, where an idea is expressed or explored via a, a simple metaphor or a, a cliche maybe. And there's a sort of comfort in that. You know, the, the trope delivers this sort of ready-made little box of significance direct to your consciousness. And, and the simplicity is the point. Whereas the business of philosophy one might say, is or or should be about sort of getting inside tropes, pulling them apart, making them more complicated and and sort of making us uncomfortable about our received notions where we might prefer to be comfortable, and that's the job of the trope. I wonder if you see a sort of incongruity there where, you know, like the trope is pulling us in one direction but the philosophical attention to the trope is taking us somewhere else.
0: I think it's right that tropes are shorthand, they're very useful shorthand. They help uh, set us up for the experience that we're going to be having. Just like in philosophy, we make a whole bunch of assumptions in order to interrogate the question that we're interested in. So if I'm interested in whether a particular account of causation is viable, I don't worry about whether the world is real and whether knowledge is possible and whether I'm a good person. I park those worries I make some kind of standard shorthand assumptions about the answers to those questions, and then do the work that I'm kind of interested in. And I think the same is true of tropes. So tropes aren't bad, they're really, really helpful. But where they go unexamined for too long, or where a trope is really pervasive but there's a mismatch where we don't see, for example, a corresponding theory in the philosophical literature. So if gender were being represented or constructed in a particular way in stories repeatedly but nothing going on in the feminist literature had anything that kind of corresponds to that or if we were seeing lots of stories with particular theories of time and nothing in the philosophy of time is kind of adhering to that then that's an interesting mismatch and to me that makes me ask okay is there something kind of going on that is there some unnoticed contradiction or some unnoticed line of thinking that means that philosophers have just have ignored this or conversely is it the philosophers have just missed the boat have we just missed some possible bit of conceptual space that we should be working in so i don't think one is simpler than the other as i've said i think good fiction makes us uncomfortable good fiction makes us think hard about stuff that we take for granted and good philosophy does that too
1: but if we look at popular culture more broadly, and this is to run that sceptical line on popular culture which says that, you know, pop culture is about mass entertainment and commercialization and lowest common denominator appeal – And obviously there are a number of pop culture texts that are smart and super interesting and really well thought out, but a lot of them aren't. And, you know, why should they be? They're just a bit of fun. But when you bring philosophical attention to something like that, is there a kind of tension there where you're hoping by some sort of weird alchemy to pull something interesting and intellectually credible out of it because philosophy has discipline and depth, whereas the pop culture text doesn't have those things?
0: I guess I have a few things to say. One is because I'm interested in tropes, I get to sidestep quite a lot of this worry because no individual instance is going to be the be-all and end-all target of any inquiry. We can look at all the very many stories that explore free will or all the very many video games that explore race or you know whatever. So. That's one of the things I think that's really helpful about thinking about patterns because it stops us getting bogged down in something that could just be a conceptual impossibility or could have been, you know, a writer having a particularly interesting day or whatever. Uh, So that's the first thing. The other thing to say is that it's true that philosophy goes about some of its work differently than some creators of fiction, although many creators of fiction sit down and have much more discipline when they're writing, I'm, I'm sure, than I do. But it's true that philosophy is trying to do something different which is increasingly and often this sort of piecemeal very careful analysis of every step along the way rather than this big brushstroke picture painting that we find in quite a lot of popular culture but again that's a trend as opposed to a rule there are a lot of interesting uh, big broad brushstroke philosophy that goes on that maybe doesn't get published these days because that's not the way that the machine works but Finally, the point about catering to the masses, this is where I think it's really important that we look at popular media in its fullest sense. It's why I often refer to something like fan fiction, because I think it's really lovely now that more and more people can contribute to uh, the creation and publication Of their stories whatever those look like Um, indie game development is another really big one and it's true that what we see in hollywood is not going to be reflective of all the possible ideas that could be going around although it is interesting how often you know you get patterns that that flow in one direction or the other you know that start in a big film and then trickle down to others into fanfic for example or come the other way so i think it's true that pop culture and philosophy might be doing different things as they should, they have different skill sets and different intentions, but it isn't the case that one should be taken, I guess, more seriously or is, is more disciplined than another. They're just different.
1: Well, pursuing that a little further, I mean, I, I think maybe for most people the, the relationship that exists between philosophy and pop culture is one where you have the pop culture phenomenon and then philosophy comes along and it's deployed as a sort of a a lens through which to render it more serious or or give it a sort of intellectual weight. You know, So Taylor Swift might be considered beneath the attention of serious philosophers until you start mining her lyrics for insights into personal identity, the nature of fame, this sort of thing, at which point she becomes officially interesting, quote unquote. But I wonder if it's possible to go the other way and look, productively at philosophy through the lens of pop culture? Like if, if there are aspects of pop culture that have influenced the way in which you approach philosophy or, or do philosophy.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, I think you're right. I think there is a tendency for philosophy when it engages to pop with pop culture to either be looking at some philosophical question where it uses fiction as its example or where Yeah, that pop culture becomes the target of some philosophical inquiry and often quite a specific one. So, yeah, the philosophy of Taylor Swift, for example. So for me, as I said earlier on, I am a big believer that this should be a bidirectional exchange that we can think about what sorts of ideas are being talked about, what sorts of ideas are not being talked about in popular culture as a way of because that doesn't that's not in a vacuum, right, philosophy. Everybody does philosophy every day. Every time they ask whether something is the right thing or a good thing or a beautiful thing or a true thing, they're doing philosophy. They just don't always call it that. And pop culture, are, I mean, they're artifacts of all the people doing philosophy every day. So yes, I think the stories that we want to tell and the stories that stick do feed in and should feed in to the philosophy that we're doing, not least because it helps philosophy be relevant to the things that people are kind of talking about on an everyday basis in terms of how it affected my philosophy generally, I mean, it it does. So firstly, I started thinking about time travel and time travel philosophy because of time travel fiction, because there were certain uh, questions that were being explored there that I wanted answers to that my high school physics teacher couldn't answer because they weren't physics questions, it turned out. And now when I teach when i think about philosophy i mean i do the standard thing of using uh, beautiful examples from fiction that are, m- are much more evocative than anything than any thought experiment that i'm going to come up with but for me engaging with pop culture is what makes the philosophy that i'm doing relevant and meaningful and not just because i want to come along and put some philosophical theorizing over the top of what's already existing but because i want uh, what i'm doing to be meaningful and informed by what matters to people And I think the stories we tell are are indicative of of that.
1: Can you think of an instance where popular culture has successfully introduced a philosophical concept to a wider audience and, and fostered genuine public philosophical inquiry or dialogue?
0: That's a really good question. I mean, there are often, um, you know, films when they come out that make people get really excited about a thing. So, like when um, Ex Machina came out, uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, AI, for example. When The Matrix came out, suddenly global skepticism seemed like an actual possibility because what if we're all living in a simulation? But those weren't the first time those ideas were introduced. To come back to time travel again, like the time machine was genius. And the time travel fiction that followed time travel philosophy is really interesting because so much of it uh, refers back to these key pieces of fiction like all you zombies by Heinlein which is problematic in other ways but does some really interesting things with causal loops and um, like the time machine for it's you know it's in the time machine that the time traveler says that a cube that lasts for no time at all doesn't exist right things need to have extension in four dimensions, they need to have length, width, breadth and duration, they need to last. So I think something about time travel in stories has really captivated people. And it is those stories that have made philosophers think about it rather than doing so independently, I think. Um, But there are probably probably very many examples. Um, None of this stuff, as I said, occur in a vacuum. Philosophers are people too. And we write stories sometimes.
1: Well, Steph, I just want to finish up by um, giving you the chance to give your website a big old plug. You have this wonderful website, The Epicurean Cure, that people can get involved with. Tell me about The Epicurean Cure. What's, What's it about?
0: Uh, so, the Epicurean Cure is a celebration of thinking rigorously and robustly about the pop culture that we love using the tools that we have from our academic or other expertise. So, we have some stories, we have interviews with interesting people, and uh, my favorite bit, we have pieces from academics talking about the pop culture that they're interested in. So, that includes things like Uh, voluntary slavery as it's handled in video games. Can you volunteer to be a slave? Or how do glottal stops get handled in uh, the speech in the Harry Potter films? Or how does time travel work in Star Trek? And the idea is to think about not just, oh, here I am with my theory, I can use this as an example, but really engaging with the fiction with love, with enthusiasm. Um, So I hope that anybody who's interested either in writing something or reading something or being interviewed uh, will get in touch because the intersection of academia and pop culture is where a lot of really interesting work should be happening and can be happening and although I have the luxury of doing philosophy professionally, many people are doing philosophy that's really interesting uh, just in their everyday lives. So do get in touch.
1: Well, there you go. The call has gone out, um, and it's it is a fantastic website, and we're going to put a link to it on the Philosopher's Zone website. And uh, this has been a great conversation. It's been lovely to talk, Steph. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And Steph Rennick is a research associate in philosophy at the University of Glasgow. Check the Philosopher's Zone website for more information, as well as a link to the Epicurean Cure, which is well worth a browse. And of course, you can find all of our episodes for streaming and download via the ABC Listen app. And just before we go, I'll mention that there is a fantastic discussion about death and religion in video games that recently went out on Radio National's Soul Search program. Highly recommended listening. If you like this program, then you're really going to like that one. And that's another link that we'll put on the Philosopher's Zone website. And thanks for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge, and I hope I'll see you next time. Bye for now.